Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 9, Episode 21, The Age of the Ninja. Bonus episode. It would be a mistake to assume that spies, scouts, assassins, and other such agents of subterfuge did not exist in Japan prior to Sengoku Jidai, but the shinobi were more than just random people willing to do a dirty job for pay. Like the samurai, they hailed from certain kin groups, often received specialized training, and were admired for the skills they provided both on and off the battlefield. Unlike the samurai, they operated in secret, often anonymously, and were usually rewarded with coin rather than land, though political independence for their people was sometimes a larger objective. Let's begin with some clarification of terms. While ninja is the most common term for trained spies, assassins, and secret agents of feudal Japan, the more period-appropriate word is shinobi. I will be using both terms interchangeably, just keep in mind that they describe the same type of warrior. If you've committed any time to researching the ninja, either through Google or through more specific academic means, you've probably learned that there were two main groups of shinobi, the Iga and the Koga. What you may not realize, however, is that these groups were named for the specific region of Kansai where they both hailed from. Iga province lay nestled in southeastern Kansai, landlocked west of Issei, south of Omi, southwest of Yamashiro, and due east of Yamato. Its terrain is rather rugged, being largely mountainous and notoriously difficult to access, which historically made it a haven for people seeking to live their lives without the burden of government interference. To the north of Iga province lies Omi province, which Oda Nobunaga famously marched his army through in order to seize the capital. The southernmost district of Omi province was known as Koga district, and it bordered Iga province and likewise shared its topographic isolation. During the Onin War, both Iga province and Koga district became essentially autonomous zones, and after Shogun Ashikaga Yoshihisa's ill-fated attempt to quell rebellious elements in Omi province, the Bakufu decided they had bigger problems than the practical independence of a nearby mountainous region. Both Iga province and Koga district developed into regional confederations, with their local jizamurai acting in a leadership capacity. This is a provincial situation with which I hope we are familiar by now, similar to Shinano province and Kaga province, wherein the leading families ruled a patchwork confederation in which they occasionally worked together, occasionally feuded, and sometimes came together to defend their homesteads against invaders and aggressive neighbors. However, unlike Shinano and Kaga, the Jizamurai and other regional magnates of Iga province and Koga district adopted irregular warfare as a way of life and frequently employed their covert arts against said invaders and aggressive neighbors. As regular listeners already know, irregular battlefield tactics were not unknown to the samurai in any period, and things like ambushes, sudden night attacks, and unexpected flanks were generally considered to be part of the average warrior's repertoire. 
Catching an enemy unaware was not perceived as being dishonorable on the part of the attacking group, but was rather thought of as negligence on the part of the samurai who had let their guard down, and thus allowed themselves to be taken by surprise in the first place. There was a variance of opinion regarding how honorable such tactics might be, but they were, during Sengoku Jidai, regular occurrences which the army commanders were expected to keep watch for. Victory, however it may have been gained, was victory. That being said, there certainly seems to have been a generally negative opinion against generals, daimyo, and other battle leaders who employed such tactics by default in every battle they fought. Oda Nobunaga was practically skyrocketed to regional fame when his meager force of between 1,500 and 3,000 managed to defeat an army of around 25,000 whom they ambushed at Okehazama. However, Nobunaga did not fight every subsequent battle at such a deficit of troops, nor with the same tactic of surprise attack. The Oda clan army was defending its home territory, and so public opinion regarding their use of ambush was likely made more favorable by the fact that any honest warrior would admit they would employ similar tactics given similar circumstances. Particularly when one side in a conflict deployed far fewer troops against their foes, such irregular tactics could be easily excused. The shinobi of Iga province and Koga district developed their skills and unorthodox way of warfare under similarly mismatched conditions. There were many locations throughout both areas which were geographically similar to Okehazama Gorge, narrow passes between steep mountains, some of which were so severe that would-be travelers would be forced to ride in a single file. Even before the advent of the shinobi clans the regions would later become famous for, Iga and Koga were known to be popular bases for bandit gangs who could extort tolls from travelers and easily fend off incursions by government troops by utilizing the advantages the landscape afforded. The residents of Iga and Koga, both Jizamurai and Kamen, had no intention of allowing their home to play host to a long-term bandit infestation. The warfare that plagued Kansai during the late 1400s and early 1500s helped encourage these bandit groups to find more prosperous regions to plunder, and the residents of those areas banded together to not only prevent the bandit gangs from ever returning, but also to preserve their independence against the increasingly rapacious warlords who were drawn to the capital with dreams of power and kingmaking. The precise timeline is messy, but we believe it was around the 1490s when the people of Iga province, both commoner and samurai status, formed what can roughly be described as a confederation. The Japanese word employed here is ikki, a term which I hope we are familiar with by now. While usually translated as league, ikki was also used to describe provinces which had no central governance, like Kaga province under the Iko ikki. Thus both Iga and Koga became known as Iga Iki and Koga Iki during the 1500s. An interesting factor in these small-scale Sengoku states is that, at least on paper, their leaders made almost no effort to attach themselves to refined pedigree or legendary ancestors. While the Iki themselves would not bother with paperwork until the latter part of the warring period when their domain came under threat, 
The authority of the Ji Zamurai leaders appears to have stemmed directly from the consent of the commoners whom they governed. And once again, please don't make the all-too-common mistake of assuming that commoner always means farmer. Artisans, entertainers, and merchants were also commoners as well as farmers. Typically, commoner simply means not noble and not samurai. That did not mean, however, that the commoners of Iga and Koga Ikis did not fight. One of the earliest existential threats to Iga and Koga's autonomy seems to have been Miyoshi Nagayoshi, whose exploits we covered earlier this season in episode 13, A Shogunate If You Can Keep It. The attempted unification of Kansai by the Miyoshi clan met with stiff resistance in many quarters, but especially in the Iga and Koga domains, where part of the duties of their Ji Zamurai leadership was training the commoners to fight as Ashgaru. By virtue of circumstance, this training included strategic education about how to utilize geographic advantages of their home, as well as techniques for gaining advantage over enemies, which highborn samurai might consider beneath their character. As a result, the many residents of Iga and Koga Ikis were economically self-reliant, militarily capable, and well-versed in less honorable means of combat. Where traditional samurai would use sword and bow, they would utilize weapons like caltrops, which were spiky iron apparatuses that stabbed into the feet of unwary enemies, and shuriken, also called throwing stars, which could wound a pursuing enemy or badly injure an opponent from a short distance before closing for the kill. In the latter Sengoku period, word began to spread that the warriors of Iga and Koga were capable fighters who were able and willing to do covert jobs that more conservative samurai would balk at. Daimyo and other ranking samurai around the nation would occasionally solicit the Iga or Koga confederations to help with certain problems. While yes, those problems were sometimes people they wanted assassinated, the shinobi were useful for far more than covertly ending the life of a rival or ambitious subordinate. While they are famously portrayed in pop culture wearing the all-black form-fitting outfit known as the shinobi shozoku, there is little evidence to support such costumes being used in actual practice, and the black-clad ninja is considered by most historians to be purely the product of imaginative stage plays, puppet shows, and artists. It is possible they favored wearing darker robes when performing nighttime operations, but in truth nearly every ninja's favorite disguise was plain clothes. Part of the reason the shinobi thrived during Sengoku was because of the commonality of migration among citizens attempting to avoid the incessant fighting in various parts of the country. Such an agent could dress as a peasant, a simple enough task because most of them were peasants, and enter their target province claiming to seek employment as a laborer or even sometimes as an ashigaru in a certain army. Sometimes they were meant to gather intelligence, other times they were under orders to ensure that someone died or that a war-making effort was sabotaged. Other popular disguises included Buddhist monks, especially komuso monks, who wore wicker baskets over their heads, as well as farmers, merchants, and unemployed ashigaru. These underhanded agents were not always men. Women from Iga and Koga were also trained in covert tactics. Women who acted as shinobi were referred to as ku no ichi, a phrase that needs some contextual explanation. 
The written Japanese kanji symbol for woman is pronounced onna and consists of three strokes, its ultimate appearance looking a bit like a stick figure. However, if one made the strokes individually and spaced them apart, the first would look like the phonetic hiragana symbol for ku, the second would look like the phonetic katakana symbol for no, and the third would look like the kanji for the number one, which in Japanese is pronounced ichi. Thus we have the kuno ichi, a deconstructed woman who engages in subterfuge activities including intelligence gathering and even assassination. Not every ninja of Iga or Koga were shamefully relegated to the dirty jobs of Sengoku, however, and a few like Hattori Hanzo were even made into full-fledged samurai vassals. Hattori Hanzo is an interesting case as he originally hailed from the Iga confederation and his family's kin group, the Hattori clan, was one of the Jizamurai families of Iga who served in a leadership role. Hanzo served Tokugawa Ieyasu, one of the first daimyo to truly comprehend the usefulness of shadow warriors in both battlefield dynamics and samurai politics. As we discussed in episode 16, Tenka Fubu, Hanzo helped rescue Ieyasu's daughters from the castle where they were imprisoned, and also captured the Imagawa vassals who had been keeping them prisoner, thus giving Ieyasu and his entire clan the leverage they needed to recover the remaining hostages from his family and wriggle out from underneath the Imagawa clan's thumb. While the samurai trained in ranged fighting as well as the arts of the sword and spear, the shinobi generally hewed toward a more acrobatic approach to fighting. They trained heavily in climbing, an extremely valuable skill in an age of castles. If they were being pursued, such a trained covert agent might climb into the rafters of the castle ceiling, or even just haul themselves up into the boughs of a tree if they could do so without being seen. Such dramatic and surprising escapes are no doubt the origins of legends that ninja could turn themselves invisible. In addition to shurikens, caltrops, and poison, a common weapon for a ninja to utilize was the short sword. Unfortunately, I am not referring to the straight-bladed short sword often called the ninja to, which was alleged to be one of the primary weapons in their arsenal. Like the shinobi shozoku, the ninja to has very little contemporary written evidence to support its existence prior to the modern era, and is also believed to be the product of fabulists spinning tall tales. It is much more likely that they would have wielded wakizashi, the common short sword also employed by the samurai, which were more easily concealable and could be utilized fairly easily for close quarters kills. When I visited Nijo Castle in Kyoto back in 2004, my tour group was proudly shown a corridor which contained a device known as Ugui Subari, which in English is translated to Nightingale Floor. The nails of this wooden floor crisscross underneath the floorboards, which cause them to rub against one another whenever a floorboard is depressed by footsteps, sounding like chirping birds when the floor is disturbed. We were challenged individually to walk across the floor without causing a sound, and all of us completely failed. While it was once believed that such nightingale floors were a security device to prevent assassins from stalking the halls of power by night, most historians now believe that the original floor was probably made by accident, and that the other castles which copied Nijo's birdsong floor probably did so for aesthetic value rather than security concerns. 
While they were happy to earn coin doing dirty jobs for daimyo around Kansai and beyond, the primary interest of both the Koga and Iga confederations was preserving their provincial autonomy. While their existence was tolerated while they made themselves useful, Oda Nobunaga's efforts to pacify Kansai under his suzerainty were bound to come into political conflict with these autonomous zones filled with warriors specializing in assassination and covert destabilization. By the time Nobunaga was in their orbit, the Iga and Koga confederations had made an official alliance with one another, after many decades of rivalry and occasional feuding. Such confederation provinces were a primary target of ambitious daimyo like Nobunaga, however, as the loose nature of its leadership often meant that the territory could be taken piecemeal. In 1570, the balance of power in Kansai had shifted considerably. Oda Nobunaga had trounced the Miyoshi clan and the Rokkaku clan, and his army was eagerly pursuing their remnants who continued to attempt a guerrilla war against the upstart from Owari. While the Iga and Koga had no love for the Miyoshi or the Rokkaku, they saw a far greater threat in Oda Nobunaga, and so they joined with the anti-Nobunaga coalition and gave military assistance to what would later be considered a dead-end cause. At the time, however, they were so effective in their harassment that when Nobunaga made his retreat from Kanegasaki, the siege in which the Azai clan turned against him, he took the road that led around the northern bank of Lake Biwa, which is a far longer route than the southern road, which would lead him too near to Koga and Iga territory. Unfortunately for the Iga confederation, Nobunaga's vassals were also well-versed in staging ambushes and did not consider themselves above using pure cunning to eliminate enemies and rivals. In the summer of 1570, as a considerably large band of Iga warriors were marching along the Yasu River, two of Nobunaga's retainers ambushed their column and subsequently inflicted 780 casualties among the Iga warband. For the small volunteer army of Iga Iki, this was a devastating loss from which they would never fully recover. That same year, a shinobi attempted to assassinate Oda Nobunaga directly, firing a musket at him. According to one account, the bullet failed to penetrate Nobunaga's armor. According to another, the bullet pierced his right sleeve but narrowly missed actually hitting his body. It is also somewhat contested whether the ninja in question hailed from the Iga or Koga group, and while it would certainly make sense for an Iga shinobi to seek revenge against the daimyo who killed so many of his countrymen, it is rather fitting that we still aren't certain about the would-be assassin's identity. You may be wondering if the activities of the ninja during Sengoku means that some of the mysterious deaths we have discussed this season might have actually been... murder. It is certainly possible, and the unexpected death of Takeda Shingen especially piques my curiosity on the matter. However, this was an age in which infection from old wounds and pneumonia could kill just as easily as poison, or the more direct assassin's blade. Such speculation can be fun, certainly, but it doesn't really suit my purposes in creating this podcast. My usual guiding light on the or-was-it-murder bit is whether or not previous historians have found good reason to engage in such questions. As it is, the potential assassination of Takeda Shingen makes a plot for an extremely good film which I will discuss in a Patreon-exclusive episode in two weeks, but actual Japanese historians don't seem to think it worthwhile to engage in such speculation, so neither do I. 
for now. This is the final episode for this season of the publicly available podcast. There will be three more bonus episodes coming for Patreon subscribers, so if you aren't a patron yet, please consider supporting the show. We will be discussing the collapse of the Shouen system, as well as the portrayal of Sengoku Jidai in four of Kurosawa Akira's films, and finally, a story episode following a woman artisan who finds her skills in high demand by Oda Nobunaga, who is eager to give his capital reconstruction efforts some decorative touches. I will need to take a little more time off than usual between seasons, partly because this season was bloody exhausting, and partly because I have a busy summer lined up with Mrs. A History of Japan and our children. I plan to resume the podcast on July 31st. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. Thank you.